The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. We pray for us and then um, we'll get into where we're going. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we're grateful for your word and we're grateful to be gathered with your people. All of this is a gift from you and we receive it as a gift and we honor it as a gift and we want to steward it as a gift. And so I pray, Lord, that you would take your word and you would do what you've done for so long. You would put it into our hearts by the power of your spirit such that we are changed. Lord, it's your truth, it's your reality that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. And so we want to fix our eyes and our gaze and our attention on you through your word, which remains forever. We love you, we need you. Pray all these things in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. amen. When I was 10 years old, I tried to run away from home. Anybody else had one of these childhood experiences? A few of us, all right. Let me tell you how it went down for me. So I'm the youngest of three brothers, and we're all three years apart. So I was 10, my two older brothers were 12 and 14. And what just sort of happens when you are in a family of this size is that each brother kind of takes on a particular stereotype role, right? So my oldest brother was the stereotypical brainiac, right? Straight A's, way too high of a score on his SATs, full ride at Clemson, all of that fun stuff. The middle brother was the athletic one. He was the jock. He broke every basketball record at our high school. He just was the guy, even today. I don't like to lift weights with him because he's much stronger than me. It's not fun because he's very athletic. And so me, naturally, I did what only option I had remaining, which is going to be a big shocker to you. I became the religious one. I thought, you know what? You know how I'm going to get my parents' attention? I'm going to be the one devoted to the things of God. And as a religious kid, I was prone to taking my faith a bit to the extreme. And at this particular point in my life, as a 10-year-old, I had decided that I was going to cut out all secular music out of of my life. I was only going to listen to what would be typically described as worship music, which, just for the record, is a totally fine religious conviction to have. Like If that's your conviction and you hold it winsomely and with grace, that's totally fine. But when you are a 10-year-old, you don't hold it with sort of like a, this is a gray area and maybe it's like a conviction for me but not for somebody else. When you're 10, it's like, I only listen to worship music and if you listen to anything else, you're a sinner going to hell. Right? That's just how you are when you're a 10 year old. And so one day we're driving home from school and the system my mom had worked out is that she rotated who got to choose the music. And so that day was my oldest brother and he turned on the music in our van to Blink-182. Blink-182, if you're not familiar, is a very popular punk rock band, particularly in the early 2000s. They're trying to come back. I don't think it's going very well personally. So by the time we got home, I was just growing angrier and angrier. How could my heathen of a mother let this debauchery into our van? And so we finally get home, and I like march up to my room, and I grab my Jansport book bag, and I load it with clothes and chewy chocolate chip granola bars and a Gatorade and a jacket, and I like head off down our quarter mile rock driveway, turn onto our road, and I start walking. I'm done. So I'm going along. And then I realized, here's the problem. We grew up at least 15 miles from town. And I was 10. And as a 10-year-old, I was a bit on the bigger side. And so I'm huffing and I'm puffing. And next thing I know, I look to the left, and there's my mom just driving our family van, just slowly next to me. And I'm just huffing and puffing. And she's just, just looking at me, just driving. And I'm walking. And, she's just, and finally, she rolls down the window, and she says, hey, are you ready to, to come in? And no, you know, I keep walking. 
few minutes later, I look in again. Are you ready? Are you ready to come in? No, no, no. I keep, I keep walking. And finally, she's like, all right, Tim, it's time to get in the van. And so I get in the van and we drive home and I was grounded for forever, right? Like I got ungrounded last week, I think, okay? It was just bad. It was really, really bad. Now, as I was thinking about our text this morning, and I was thinking about this teaching, and I was thinking about our series, and I was thinking about that ridiculous story from my childhood, and all of those details are true. My mom was with us this week. I confirmed every single detail of that was true. I kept picturing, kept thinking about, I wonder if this is a picture of our life with God. For how many of us, we spend our lives, we spend our energy, we spend our attention and affections and everything within us walking on the road, trying to outrun a gracious, pursuing, and seeking father. How much of our lives is spent just slowly trying to get away from the one who is slowly and assuredly and steadily calling us home. And so what I want to do today from the scriptures is I want to turn our attention to this reality about our God. God seeks the runaway. To do that, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 2 and 3, the story or the beginning of the story of a man named Moses. Now Moses' life is really fascinating. Moses lived for 120 years, and his life is pretty easily broken up into three chunks, 40 years, 40 years, and 40 years. And most of us have some working knowledge of the last 40 years of his life, what Moses does from 80 to 120. We know this from Sunday school or the famous movies with the 10 plagues and the journey across the Red Sea and the golden calf, all of that. But all of that takes place from 80 to 120. What we want to look at today is what's happening from zero to 80. What we're going to see in the first few chapters of Exodus is that before Moses was the courageous and powerful leader of Israel, he was a man on the run from God, hiding in a desert in a place called Midian. That's the part of the story I want to learn from and be encouraged by today. What does it look like for God to seek us in our running. So Exodus chapter two, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some on the rows. We're just going to be in it for for a long, long time. And so you're going to want one because I just want to walk through the story. I don't want to assume we know it. I just want to pull some things out for us and then we'll try to apply it into our lives. Sound good? We like God's word? We good with that? Sweet. Exodus chapter two, we'll start in verse one. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, spoiler alert, that's Moses, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. All right, a bit of a backstory so you know why Moses has to be hid by his mother for three months. So leading up to this, the Israelites lived not in their homeland, but in the land of Egypt. And prior to this time, Israel and Egypt's relationship was was pretty good. Before this, in a generation past, there was a man named Joseph, and Joseph was second in command to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and they had a good working relationship. A famine had brought Israel to Egypt, and Joseph had kind of mediated this relationship where the Israelites were taken care of by the goods of the Egyptians. Everything was great. But a few generations have passed now, and there's a new Pharaoh, a new king of Egypt, who the text says in Exodus 1 knows nothing about Joseph. And he's not a huge fan of the Israelites. He's nervous because the Israelites basically just keep having babies. And he's very afraid that they're going to grow so strong in number that if one of the enemies of the Egyptians attacks, the Israelites are going to be like, we like them, we're going to go with them, let's overthrow Egypt together and then take over the land of the Egyptians. And so he decides to do whatever it takes to hold the Israelites 
upside down. And he does that in chapter one through three specific ways. The first way is through forced servitude, through slavery. He says, maybe if I can force them to build our buildings, build all the infrastructure of our cities, that will keep them back and hold them down as a people. The text says that fails to work, they just keep multiplying. And so he decides option two is to command all of the Hebrew midwives, hey, when you go to help deliver a baby, if it's a girl, you can let it live, but if it's a boy, you must kill him. But the Hebrew midwives, they fear God more than they fear Pharaoh, and so they don't do this. It's actually a really interesting exchange. Pharaoh shows up and he's like, why aren't you killing these boys? And they're like, well, you see the, Egypt, the Hebrew women, they're so strong that before we arrive, they just push the baby out and we can't do anything about it, our bad. I think it's funny, I like the Bible, okay. And then he says option three, that doesn't work, I know it's kind of a weird thing. Uh, option three is he goes, if that's not gonna work, then here's the decree across the whole land, Egypt and Israel, is that when a child is born, if they are a woman, you can let them, or a girl, you can let them live. If they are a boy, then you must throw them into the Nile River. So this is what he's trying to do. He's trying to stomp these people out and it's in that environment under threat of his life that Moses is born. Verse three, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with binamin and pitch. She's just kind of fastening this thing together. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So notice, this is Pharaoh's daughter. She knows the decree. This child is not supposed to live and yet she sees the boy and has compassion, has pity on him. Verse seven, then his sister, Moses' sister, comes out of the reeds and he says to, she says to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Sneaky, sneaky. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl, Moses' sister, went and called Moses' mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So Moses' sister works it out. Hey, I have someone who can raise this child for you for the first few years. And so he works it out for him to go back to his home and now Pharaoh's gonna foot the bill. It's beautiful. So the woman shook the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, most likely around two or three years old, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. What we're gonna see next is that Moses is gonna spend the first 40 years of his life being raised largely as an Egyptian. He's the adopted grandson of Pharaoh, and he's gonna get all of the best teaching and training that the Egyptians have to offer. He's gonna learn hieroglyphics and mathematics and literature and philosophy. Stephen, who's a leader in the early church, in his sermon in Acts chapter seven, says this about Moses. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. So here's Moses getting all of this training. He's growing up to be strong. Uh, we get some other backstory filled in by a man named Flavius Josephus. He was a Jewish historian shortly after the life of Christ. And he wrote a historical account of the life of Moses from Egyptian records. And it's really fascinating, a bit inflated. It's a really funny read, but a few things he hits on. The first is that during these 40 years in Egypt, Moses was most likely a, a war general. And he's actually most famous in Egypt during that time for leading a battle and winning against the Ethiopians, who are one of the Egyptians' main enemies. There's also this little bit that Josephus has about how beautiful he is, that when he would walk through town, 
down, both Egyptian and Israelite men and women would all stop and stare at him because he was so beautiful. Again, it's a bit inflated, but you get the point. Moses is doing all right, right? That's, that's, that's true here in the text. The first 40 years of his life, he's got it made. And I just want to make sure we see that, that he's not like struggling for anything. He's got everything he wants. The, gra- the grandson, adopted grandson of Pharaoh, things are good for him. Verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, we know from Acts that he's 40 years old at this point, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now feel the crossroads moment for Moses here, right? 40 years of everything he ever wants. He's taken care of. He's well-respected. He's well thought of. He's got everything he needs. And now he's at this moment where he sees one of his people being mistreated at the hands of one of his new adopted people. And he has this choice. What am I going to do? Am I going to step in against oppression, against injustice, or am I going to let it ride and just keep heading into my cushy life for the rest of my days? What is he going to do? Look at what he does. Verse 12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, just to be clear, standing up against injustice is a good thing. Wanting to step in when one of his people is being mistreated is a good thing, but two wrongs do not make a right. Moses is wrong here. He takes someone's life unjustly, and he knows he's in the wrong, because notice what the text says. He looks this way and that, right? What do you do when you're about to do something you know you shouldn't do? Anybody watching? Anybody watching? He kills the man, and then he puts him in the sand. He hides him. He tries to cover up what he has done, but the secret gets out. Verse 13. When he went out the very next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? So he's like, hey, I just settled this between an Egyptian and an Israelite. Now there's two Israelites fighting. Why are you fighting amongst yourselves? Verse 14, the man answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Yeah, no duh. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Less than 24 hours, word spreads among both the Israelites and the Egyptians. Moses is a murderer. Pharaoh's angry. He wants him killed. So Moses flees to a land of Midian. Midian is roughly 200 miles east of Egypt. It's as far as he can go before entering into the Arabian Peninsula. 200 miles. No car, no bus, no plane. On foot, he's running as far as he could possibly run. And he gets to Midian, and the text says he sits down at a well. Now, just pause there for a minute. I want us to try to feel what might be going on in the heart and mind of Moses at this point in the story. Because sometimes I think we have this tendency to read the Old Testament as sort of fictional characters in a story and not as real humans living real lives. So just try to put yourself into Moses' shoes, right? For the first 40 years, he's lived in complete luxury. He's the adopted grandson of the king of Egypt, which is one of, if not the wealthiest nations at this moment in history. He's got military prestige and honor. He's set up to probably not take over the throne, but at least have a high-ranking position for the rest of his life in Egypt. And in less than 24 hours, he goes from a life of power and luxury and fame and prestige to having nothing, being a murderer on the run in the desert. So let me just ask us this question to help us feel this moment. What do you think happens to the soul of a 40-year-old man who loses everything? Just think about that for a second. What do you think happens to the soul of a 40-year-old man who loses everything? Now, chances are, a good chunk of us are like, I don't know, I'm not there yet. (laughs) 
Like, it's kind of hard, right? Like, I, I, I thought about this earlier, and I was like, I do this thing with sermons where I kind of test it out on folks at lunches and over coffees. I'm like, hey, what do you think about this? And I would ask that question, like, what do you think happens to the soul of a 40-year-old man who loses everything? And people would be like, I don't know. That's so far away. For many of us, it's like, I got 10 years. I got 15 years. I got 20. Like, I don't know what happens, so let me just try to make this land a little bit more at home for you. Every single one of us spends our 20s and 30s struggling to build a life. Some of us, we go to college, we take on absurd amounts of debt to get a piece of paper saying we can do a few things. Some of us are suckers for punishment, so we go back again, and some of us again, hypothetically. Others of us, we go to trade school or the military, but in some way, shape, or form, we enter into a career, and then once we get into that career, we work ourselves to death to make something of that career. Way more hours than we should, nights, weekends, 2 a.m. emails, you know the drill. We try to build a home in a place. So we try to make some friends, which always seems way harder than it should post-college. We may get married, we may rent an apartment or buy a home. Everyone's life story looks different in these adult years, and yet for 99% of us in the room, there's one universal constant. We work ourselves in the ground to build some sort of life we enjoy. Do we not? Do we not? Now imagine everything that you are currently working so hard for. Every email thread you stayed up way too late on this week. Every disciplinary action you tried to, in order to shape the hearts of your kids towards Jesus. Every friendship you tried to build. Every car payment you made. Every home you tried to invest in. Imagine everything you were giving away the first four decades of your life to build. And in 24 hours, it's gone. Imagine the thing you're gonna give your soul away for almost over the next 10 years, and you hit 40 and it's gone. We feel what Moses is feeling in this moment. He has everything, and in 24 hours, he loses it all. And he's in Midian, in the desert, and that's where he is going to stay for the next 40 years of his life. Because, and we talked about this two weeks ago, God, unfortunately for us, in our society of speed and haste and hurry, moves at his own pace. He's patient. He's always on time, but he's always patient. And so Moses is in Midian for 40 years. He gets married. He has some kids. Those kids probably have some kids. He takes up shepherding, as you do when you're stuck in the desert for 40 years. And then just when you think the curtain closes, here's what we read in chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, to the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So it's on fire, but it's not disintegrating like bushes do when they're on fire. It's just burning, but not burned up. Verse 3, And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And the Lord saw that he turned aside to see. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then the Lord said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people 
who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. So God says, I've heard the affliction of my people. I'm gonna bring them out of Egypt and into the promised land. Hold that thought for next week. That's where we're gonna get to next week. Verse nine. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel have come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. So God says, I've seen this injustice, I've seen this oppression that they are under, but here's the crazy thing, verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. 40 years of running, 40 years of hiding, 40 years in a nowhere desert place called Midian, and God shows up, and he says, Moses, I have this plan of deliverance for my people, and guess what? You're at the center of it. You're the one I want to use. I won't let you live the rest of my, your life in hiding in Midian. I have a purpose for your life. I'm going to use you in the powerful global redemption story for my people. If you will stop running, stop hiding, turn aside and surrender to me, I will redeem the story of your life in a way that you cannot imagine. That is the seeking heart of our God. That is his heart for Moses. And church, that is his heart for you and for me. God seeks the runaway. That's what he does. He shows up, he gets our attention, he calls us back to himself, and we are doing everything in our power to get as far away from him as possible. He seeks the runaway. Now, question, where does that land for you this morning? Where does that hit for you this morning, this reality that God seeks the runaway. I think for some of us in the room, if I had to guess, we just automatically feel this in our souls. Like we hear God seeks the runaway and we are well aware of the pattern of our life, all of the ways we are running from him. We are well aware of all of the ways we are hiding from him, pushing him away, trying to get out of his presence. Even you being in this room today, you're like, I don't need any evidence God is pursuing me. There's no reason I should be in a church right now. So why, but it's also a church. You're like, there's no way. God obviously is seeking me. Like, I feel this at a deep core reality of my soul that, of course, even the fact that I'm here singing and, and hearing God's truth read and proclaimed from his word, like, even that reality means I have evidence that he is seeking me. And for some of us, we're just well aware. It's like, you, don't, you can stop now. I know he's seeking me. I'm ready to surrender to him. I'm well aware of all of the ways I'm running. But for others of us, you might think, I don't know if this really applies to me at all. Like it doesn't, doesn't feel like I'm running from God. Like I'm, I'm here, I'm a part of a church, I'm, I'm in a community group, I'm reading my Bible, I pray. Like I, don't, I don't feel like I'm running. So here I want to do a little bit more work to kind of get it into our, our hearts for a minute. Running doesn't always look like how we think it does. For some of us, running looks a bit more subtle and a bit more sneaky. And so let me just try to dissect what running might look like for you. Running for God, from God for you might look like not confessing to him that one sin you just sort of wish would disappear. Like keeping to yourself that one part of your life I know doesn't really glorify him. I know I should bring it to him in prayer. I know I should confess it to others and receive the help, but I just, I just want to kind of keep it to myself and keep it hidden, keep it mine. That's running. For others of us, running from God can be that avoiding that specific calling or desire he keeps trying to place on your heart because you already have your future story written. 
You already know the plans you have for yourself. So why would you surrender to the plans of God? Why would you even consider moving overseas for the sake of the gospel? Why would you even consider leveraging your career somewhere strategic for the sake of mission? Why would you even consider downsizing your house and moving into a particular neighborhood for the sake of the gospel? Why would you even consider shaping your budget around generosity towards those in need and not towards your own comfort? Even though God is calling you and calling you and calling you, that resistance is running. Maybe for you, running looks like resisting that little step of obedience. It's not the big call on your life. It's that little thing he's calling you to do. That conversation he's been telling you to have for months. That forgiveness he's been inviting you to extend for years. That friendship you know you're supposed to build. That coworker that's so difficult that you know you're supposed to go out of your way to love. That habit you know is getting in the way of you actually loving your friends and family that you know you're supposed to actually take a step to work against. And yet you won't. It's running. Or what about every time God tries to speak his love over you in Christ? Through his word and through his spirit, you're reading the Bible and he's trying to speak over you, his affection for you because of the work of Jesus and you just keep responding, yeah, but what about? Yeah, but you don't know. Yeah, but I can, I can do better, God. That's running. Maybe for some of us, it's just that general posture of I needed God before, but now my life's pretty okay. I've got what I need, my health is good, my family's good, my friends are good, my career's good, I'm good, I look good, I just kinda got everything. What do I need God for anymore? That's running. And yet, church, the heart of God in all of that is to seek you, to pursue you, to chase you down, and to draw you back to himself, sometimes in the still, small voice of prayer. Sometimes in the quiet of the night, sometimes in the text from his word, sometimes in the community of people you've surrounded yourself with, sometimes it's subtle, it's calm, and it's small, and in other times, it's a burning but not burned up bush in our lives. And we got annoyed because we thought it was an interruption. We got annoyed because it derailed our plans for the week. We thought it was a setback to our career. We thought it was this thing that was just gonna totally derail our entire trajectory of upward and to the right we were headed on. And God's like, could it potentially be that it was a burning bush of me trying to get your attention to keep you from stop running from me? And that's the invitation. And we know that God seeks the runaway, both from the story of Moses, but also, and here's the good news of Christ, is because 1,300 years later, the true and better Moses would come. Amen. Another son would be born on the run from a king who wanted to have all the male sons killed. Another man who would not flee to the desert but willingly enter the desert to go toe-to-toe with the temptations of the devil and win. Another redeemer sent to rescue God's people from captivity. So we know God seeks the runaway because we see it in the story of Moses, but we also, in the story of Moses, get glimpses of the greater redeemer called out of the desert to lead God's people home. See, the story of Moses is beautiful, but it's beautiful because it's a foretaste of the redemption offered to all of us in Christ Jesus. That's what Hebrews tells us. Moses is awesome. Moses did great things. He was called out of his running, called out of his hiding to lead God's people to redemption in their home. But there's a true and better Moses that has come, not from hiding in the desert, but from up in heaven with the Father, come to earth to what? Luke 19, seek and save the lost. Seek and save the runners. Seek and save those in hiding. Seek and save those who want nothing to do 
with him. This is the heart of our God. On display in the story of Moses, shouted across the world in the cross, I've come to seek those who are running. And he seeks us even today, even still. Eugene Peterson, uh, another one of my favorite kind of more modern authors, he passed away about six years ago. He's most famous for writing The Message, if you know that uh, translation of the scriptures. But he also was a professor for a while. He wrote 40-some books. He was a pastor in a local church for 30-plus years. And at his funeral six years ago, his son Leif Peterson, who's also a pastor, kind of gives up and he gets to give the eulogy for his father. And he ends the eulogy by saying, my father had all of you fooled. You thought over the course of 35 plus years of ministry, 40 books, hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of sermons, lectures in the classroom, the message translation of the Bible, you thought he was saying different messages every time, but he actually had you all fooled. He was saying one message in a thousand different ways. And that one message was the same message he would say to us every single night before bed as children. This is the message he says of the life of his father, and it's the message of Exodus 3, it's the message of the cross. God loves you. He's coming after you, and he is relentless. Church, would you receive that in your soul this morning? That God loves you, and he's coming after you, and the good news for all of us who are running, he's relentless. And so the question for us is, will we stop running? Will we stop running? Will we let him do the point of his seeking. We let ourselves be found. A really practical way to do this, I don't just want to give you the good idea, I actually want to give you a way to get this into your life. And we talked about this last week, but just a really simple practice. If you want to know how to stop running from the Lord and to hear from him, is the practice of listening prayer. We talked about this last week. It's, it's very simple. It's very easy. It's taking some time once a week, a couple times a week, once a day for five minutes, just sit with the Bible open, with your heart open in silence before the Lord and just ask, Lord, is there anything I am keeping from you? Is there any part of me that is running from you, hiding from you? Is there anything in my life that you want to speak over me that, is sh- that you want to show me ways I'm running and hiding? And then you confess it to him, you give it to him, you receive his love for you in Christ Jesus. A very simple way to just in the chaos of busyness, if your life's like mine, it's just noise 24-7. Noise, busy, hurry, chaos, rush. It's just setting moment aside to go, I'm going to stop running through the craziness of my life and stop and let the Lord speak about how I'm running from him. What am I hiding from him? What am I keeping from him? Maybe for some of us right now, the next song we're about to sing together is the invitation for you to to pause and to not sing, and instead to seek the Lord in listening prayer. Maybe for you, just a, a good step of obedience to the reality of Christ pursuing you and God pursuing you is, I'm just not going to sing this one. I'm going to sit this one out, and I'm going to sit, and I'm going to sit in silence and let the Lord show me ways that I am running from him, and then I'm going to confess it to him, and I'm going to confess it to somebody who loves Jesus and loves me. Maybe that's the invitation from the Father for you. Church, let me end with this good news, and then we'll pray. God loves you. He's coming after you, and he's relentless. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the life of Moses, the ups and the downs, the twists and the turns. We're grateful for this beautiful example of how patiently and slowly you work in our lives. We receive Exodus 2 and 3 as good news for our souls that you 
don't want to leave us in the desert of Midian, but you want to seek us, pursue us, rescue us back into your redemptive plan. You can see that in Moses, but Lord, even more beautifully, we see it on the cross. We see Christ taking our sin, though he was sinless, paying our penalty, though he was righteous, and yet giving us his righteousness, Lord. And so we surrender to you. We don't want to run anymore. We don't want to hide anymore. We don't want to think we can figure it out on our own, Lord. We want to surrender even those little places of our lives, those little pieces of our hearts that we want to hold back from you, Lord. Would you have all of us? And would you send whatever burning but not burned up bush you need to into our lives to get all of us? We love you. Probably sings in Christ's name. Amen.